Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We are all looking for significance in our life, and Paul shows us four assurances from God that our lives matter and have significance. You're listening to Finding Significance by guest speaker Jolene Dehir. My beloved brothers and sisters of my LaGrave family, it is a profound and humbling honor to get to open God's word with you today. And our scripture today is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 14. It's found on pages seven, uh, 1797 in your pew Bibles. And I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open if you wish, because I will be referring to verses as we go on. Also, as we're reading, I want you to pay attention to the four callings that God places on our life as we find them in these verses. Chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The ones we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most inherent and powerful needs of human beings is the need to know that their life matters, that there's a reason for their existence, that they have a purpose. In short, human beings need to know that they have significance. And this innate need is so powerful that it drives people to amass great wealth, to acquire power and prestige, to seek after plaudits and popularity, to do heroic deeds, that can bless other people. And while none of these are inherently bad, they are good, none of them can actually assure us of that which we need to know most, and that is that my life has significance. So where do we go? Where do we go to find that assurance that we need so much? Well, as always, the very best place to start is right here in the Word of God. And Because God has, as we have just read, God has put this call upon our lives. And we're going to explore four of those powerful assurances that God has given us that our lives do matter and we do have a reason and a purpose to live. And those start in verse 17. And verse 17 begins with the word, therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, of course, we need to go back and ask ourselves, what is therefore? So I refer you back to verses 14 and 16, through 16, or actually 14 and 15, 
where it says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What is the foundation for these callings? What is the basis that we can claim him and be, claim him as assurance that we have significance? It's Christ's love. It's Christ's sacrifice. It's Christ's resurrection. It's only because of what Christ did as the, as the atoning sacrifice that these callings, can, we can claim them for ourselves and be assured that we are people who matter. So, let's go and start exploring the four callings that we have. In verse 17... We read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, is, the new creation has come. Now, the way I memorized it was, if you'll see in your footnote, um, it can also mean that Christ, that person, is a new creation. I memorized it in that when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. So one of the, the callings we have is to be a new creation in Christ's new creation. And that is... Um, it's not just like somebody takes a label and slaps it on us or that they re-educate us or rehabilitate us. When we are in Christ through faith in him, claiming the power of his resurrection and his death, we are recreated to the very essence of our being. We are made new. We are recreated. And, and we can enter into this newness of his creation. And so the, and as it says here, the old has gone, the new has come. Now, it's interesting that the verb tense there indicates a past action with continuing consequences. And, of course, the past action was the um, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And the continuing consequences is that we are redeemed and we are now able to be in Christ, in union with him, in fellowship with the Father. And that is going to continue to go on because the old is gone, and when Jesus hung on that cross and he said, it is finished, he meant it. The sting of death was finished. Sin, finished. And, and, and this effect that to hold us and to bind us, we are now set free. The chains that used to hold us to our past are broken through the blood of Jesus Christ. The new has come. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, in the, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a powerful opportunity and a, a powerful message that we get to de declare to the world and a powerful assurance that we are a new creation in him. What a reason to celebrate our significance. Now, it doesn't mean we're all perfect. We all know that. But we are living the resurrected life. And as Ephesians 4.24 reminds us, we are putting on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we have a new focus, a new influence, a new master, a new reason to go on. It's the new has come, and we get to live into the fullness of that. And the amazing thing, after all of these years of walking with Christ that still makes me want to drop to my knees, is I didn't deserve any of this, and neither did you. It's a gift of grace. And we just open our arms wide, and God sends his spirit, and we're a new creation. And that is significant. Now, as these new creations, in verse 18, it says that we are now reconciled to God through Christ, and he has given us 
the Ministry of Reconciliation. Here we are, ordinary people, broken, imperfect, trying to clothe ourselves with the grace and holiness of God, failing, sometimes succeeding. But God has chosen us to give humanity its single greatest need. And its single greatest need of humanity is not food or safety or connection. It's not even oxygen. The single greatest need of humanity is to be reconciled back to God, to get back to where we, were, we started in perfect union with God. At creation, when God was, did, performed a creative act, he looked at it and he would go, oh, that's good. And then he used his God hands and he, out of the dust he created a man. And out of the man, he took a rib and created a woman. And he looked at his creation he said, that is very good. And there was total intimacy and fellowship and unity. There was no shame. There was no separation. I love in chapter 3 of Genesis where it talks about God coming down in the cool of the evening to walk and talk with Adam and Eve. Have you ever thought what that would be like? Just try to picture it in your minds. It's the most perfect summer evening. The air is redolent with the smell of the flowers all around you. The, it's, and as the breezes blow, it's like satin on your skin. And you can hear the crickets singing. And you're actually in the presence of God. You can see him. You can touch him. He's holy. You're still holy. It is the intimacy that had to be there must have been amazing. But then sin entered the world. And some of the saddest words that I read in this book are found in that third chapter of Genesis where God does come down in the cool of the evening and he calls out to Adam, where are you? Now he's God, he knows where Adam is. I've often wondered if God's not giving Adam a chance to say, um, God, we're over here behind the bushes. You know the woman you gave me? We got a situation. We need to talk. I need to confess. But the sad words are, Adam hid from God. And the holy God had to remove himself from his sinful, now sinful creation. And from that day to this, our need has been in the most inner recesses of our soul to become back into that fellowship where there's no more pretense. And that's what we get to tell the world. We are those ministers of reconciliation. But see, what I find so wonderful that just thrills my soul is even at that moment where the separation happened, God immediately made a plan. God's the initiator. God continued to move towards man. And he is the subject of all the verbs because he is the one who is doing the action. But the reconciling agent that he's going to use is his son. And through his son, there is now reconciliation. And we get to share this wonderful, wonderful good news just look at verse 19, the message we get, but God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting <clears throat> um, people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. You see, we love to share good news. When we have good news, we want to tell people, right? Like you find a new restaurant, you can't wait to tell your friends. Your sports team does something really great, you call up your friends, did you see that play? And you're talking. Or the best I've had lately, when your granddaughter comes to you and tells you you're going to be a great-grandma in September, that's my great news. And if you want to talk to me about it, I will do it for a very long time. 
but even more wonderful than getting to be a great grandma for the first time is the good news that Jesus Christ lives. Jesus Christ forgives. Jesus Christ empowers. Jesus Christ indwells us. This is the good news. Why are we so hesitant to share it? It is the best. It's what humanity needs. It's their greatest need. And we are chosen to be those ministers. And that gives us significance. And not just ministers of reconciliation. God continues to call us to important places. Notice the next verse that it says that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now think with me for a moment about what ambassadors do. An ambassador is somebody who is specifically chosen by the king or the ruler of the country or the president or the prime minister. And they, they are the official representative in a foreign land of that country. They don't just speak their words. They speak on behalf of the king or the ruler. They have authority. And if they get to stand in the gap. If, if some, one of their countrymen come over and get in trouble, they stand in the gap for that person. And I didn't realize how important an ambassador was until I needed one. In 1996, I was blessed to be asked to be the by World Missions, then World Missions, to be the speaker at their mission conference in Jos, Nigeria. And so they, um, World Missions asked my husband and I to take eight boxes of items that they had accumulated for the missionaries along with us on our journey. They told us they do it all the time. They would have a manifest for us. Any documentation that needed to be handled would be handled. They would have one of their missionaries plus an, Ameri an African national meet us and go through customs with us. They said they've never, ever had a problem before. Would we please do it? And we said, sure. They also told us that at that time, and probably even worse now, Nigeria was very corrupt, and it was the, uh, run by a bribe system. And they told us that under no circumstances may we pay a bribe. Because if we come in and pay a bribe, the next, they will expect it from the next missionaries, which would put them in even more danger. So my husband and I and Faith get on that plane. We fly to Kano, Nigeria. Get off the plane, it's 114 degrees. And it's right before the rainy season, so the air is so humid you could just cut it with a knife. It was just... So we walk into the, what was supposed to be the airport. It looked to me like my father's cow shed, but it was an airport. And as I walked in, I noticed there was all these soldiers with submachine guns strapped to their backs, which is a little disconcerting. But we just we were some of the first people to, um, to go into customs because in Nigeria, the custom is they think if you're overweight, you're really rich. So they thought we were millionaires. And <laughs> so we were ushered to the head of the line. And so the customs agents uh, go through our luggage. That makes it fine. They start going through the boxes. And also I noticed that was disconcerting, me, disconcerting to me was that uh, the missionary and the African national had not arrived. Turns out they had had car trouble. But we thought we'll just keep, continue to go ahead. And as the agents were going through one of the boxes, they found a two-way radio that back then is what they used to communicate um, when people lived in the bush. We didn't have, you didn't have cell phones. And being Nigeria, 90% of the time, the um, phone lines were down. And so this is one sure way. So they were sending over this two-way radio. And the customs agent made it clear to us that they felt that this was not quite legal. But if we wanted to pay some money, they could probably overlook it. Well, we couldn't do that. And we let them know. 
And suddenly one of those soldiers said something and four of those soldiers pulled their guns and pointed them at my husband's head. And they marched him out of the airport. And I'm standing there alone in a country where I don't speak the language. I have eight boxes plus two pieces of luggage. I I'd have the name of my contact, but I have no phone number, no way to contact them. They still were not there. I didn't know what to do. I have never been more frightened in all my life. I had heard stories of what people do to Americans in foreign jails. It was profoundly, profoundly scary. And I thought, I've got to talk to the American ambassador. I need to talk to somebody who will stand up for the President of the United States and say, this man is, is innocent. You must let him go. You cannot hold him. You cannot detain him. And I finally found a phone, but of course, the phone lines were down. <sighs> so we went into prayer. And unfortunately, about that time, the missionary and his friend showed up. And we spent the night on our knees praying for David's deliverance. And God was gracious. And that next morning, he, the, the missionary also found out where they were keeping David. It was kind of like the head of the FBI here. And, and so day he went there in the morning and talked the man into letting David go. They kept the radio, but they let David go, which I was very grateful for because I just barely got him totally trained. And so, but then I found out he'd been sitting all night in an air-conditioned office while I'd been in that heat. But I loved him enough to forgive him for that. So, but here's the deal. I share that story with you because we are surrounded by people who are in far, far more danger than David ever was. People in our families, people in our workplaces, people in our schools, people in, that are walking past this building right now who are in the danger of eternal damnation without Jesus Christ, without the good news of reconciliation, without the good news of forgiveness. And we get to be the ambassadors that stand in the gap because we are chosen by the King of Kings. We are given his words to say. We have authority in the spiritual realm. We need to be on our knees praying for revival, for people to come to salvation. We should have our hearts breaking. Well, what's breaking the heart of God? We have been called to be ambassadors. We need to be standing up for justice and righteousness and doing all that we can to be sure that all peoples everywhere are treated as image bearers of God. We're ambassadors. You know, I used to think an ambassador, being an ambassador meant you got to ride in the limo with the little flags flickering and wear tuxes and sequin gowns going to parties. But it's far greater privilege to be on your knees and to be speaking the words of the king. We are called to be ambassadors. And then verse 21. I have to say, no matter how many times I read this verse or recite this verse, it takes my breath away. The awe and the wonder of this verse moves me like little else. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We get to be the righteousness of God. Let's pause for just a second and think about what, what it took for that to happen. God made him, who's him? His only son, his only son. Dave and I were only able to have one son. And I've tried all these years to imagine what it would be like to love somebody else enough to let them torture and kill my child. And I can't. 
But God's love is so great. His mercy is so amazing. His grace is beyond our understanding. And God made his only son to be sin for us. And Jesus opened his arms wide and he took it and he carried it and he did it perfectly. And that powerful, powerful act of righteousness imputed God's righteousness to us. And now we wear righteousness as a breastplate when we put on the armor of God and we get to be righteousness. But what does it look like to be righteousness? That's a wonderful theological term. We could say to the children, now go to school and be righteousness. What does that mean? Well, this book is full of wonderful ideas on how to do that. And just one I want to share with you, if you want to turn to Isaiah 61. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ that he perfectly fulfilled. But as his followers, we need to follow his example and walk in his steps. And this is what Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4 say. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of, for the Lord, for the display of his splendor. And they will rebuild ancient ruins, restore places long devastated, and renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. There is nothing more significant or exciting than getting to be God's righteousness. My dear brothers and sisters, if you're still looking, trying to find your significance, never forget that in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a minister of reconciliation. You're an ambassador. You're righteousness. And my prayer is that each one of us in this room and each person watching will live as boldly and as passionately and as sold out to the one who lived boldly and passionately and died for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize our ordinariness, our sinful brokenness. But we also realize and are profoundly grateful that you have chosen to give our lives significance by redeeming us, calling us, and empowering us. May you find us faithful to that call. In the powerful, strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.